What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection. This is episode 76 of the show. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined by Ben Badler on this Friday morning. We're recording a little bit later than normal, but hopefully you guys will still be able to listen to the show this week. We got our streak intact. I'm not, not really sure what it's up to, Ben, um, but how are you doing this morning? Yeah, everything's everything's good. Coming off the uh, Hall of Fame discourse, always fun. But um, no, I like seeing, I mean, very happy to see Adrian Beltre get in somebody who what, what did he get like 98 99 percent of the vote very uh very deserving player obviously uh joe mauer who i think people yeah. probably underappreciated during his career just how mm-hmm. great of a player he was and then happy to see todd helton uh as well i think maybe initially people looking at his Colorado and Coors Field mm. home park and discrediting him for that, which, you know, some certainly is fair to an extent, but uh, I think another very deserving candidate too. Yeah. So Adrian Beltre gets in uh, on his first, first time on the ballot with 95.1% of the vote. Joe Maurer, obviously, I, I guess maybe a little more surprising to get in on first ballot, just based on some of the reactions around the game. He gets in with uh, just edging over 75%. He's at 76.1%. Todd Helton, um, 79.7%. And then our closest other player to making the class this year was Billy Wagner in his ninth time on the ballot this year. He was just shy at 73.8%. Uh, it feels like everyone is kind of assuming he'll get in on his 10th year on the ballot typically is how it tracks when players have reached this sort of threshold. Um, he has gained a lot of votes in recent years. I think from returning voters this year, he gained 12 votes. Um, he only lost three. Uh, so that's a net gain of nine votes year over year. I mean, uh, we've talked about Hall of Fame and our philosophies. I, I would tend to be a big Hall guy if I was voting, if I if I had a vote, if I was in the BBWA. Um Wagner would be on mine. I can see cases for him not being in. I can see cases for him being in. But just given some of the other relievers who are in the game, I have trouble contextualizing like how we evaluate relievers, how we evaluate modern starters. I think modern pitchers in general are maybe the most difficult to address. But certainly Adrian Beltre is very deserving. I was happy that Maurer got in first ballot. I don't really, I don't really see the the gatekeeping side of things when you're like, Oh, he, he's a hall of famer, but not a first ballot hall of famer. I think if you're a hall of famer, you're a hall of famer and, and <laughs> what ballot you get in on is more political than anything. Like if, if you think he's a hall of famer, you should vote for him regardless. Um, in my mind. And I think he's deserving. I probably lean more towards peak than longevity. If I had to, obviously both are important, but if I had to just steer towards one or the other, like uh, an accumulator who is just solid for two decades versus someone who is maybe one of the best players in the league for a shorter period of time. I think the latter is a bit more impressive. And obviously Joe Maurer was that for about 10 years um, prior to his concussions and moving to first base. Um, It's a little odd maybe that it's such a contact and OBP oriented profile. Um, But I I think he's in good company with some of the other catchers in the hall. I think he's very much deserving. Um, and I guess, Ben, how, how many years do you have to wait before you get a vote? It's got to be coming up soon, right? We talk about this every yeah, year. Yeah, it should be coming up in, I think, uh, at some point in the next few years. I don't know. It's not like they send me an update every year of, like, how many. You don't get a countdown <laughs> mail? A clock of, <laughs> yeah. It's, you should know the year that you're going to vote, though. And come on, you should know this. Uh, yeah, they the don't, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's no, I don't I don't get any documentation for 
from the from isn't the it, BBWA. Isn't, it just, isn't just your tenth year in the BBWA? Yeah, Is that not yeah. Right? So it's it's not it's not like it's going to be next year or this year or whatever it's going to be. So I, I know it's not that, yeah. but um, it should be coming up in a couple years. Well, if you did have a vote this year, who would have been on it for you? Oh, um, well, the the three who got in. Um, yep. Now I'm going to have to pull up the ballot here. Um, we did. Um, we talked about this in the Slack, so I'm trying to pull up my my names that I had, but I had a ballot filled out, so I can maybe give you mine and give you a little more time to go over the ballot yourself. But just going over the names here, yeah, like you said, I would have Adrian Beltre, I would have Todd Helton, I would have Joe Maurer. Um, I would also have Carlos Beltran, he would be on my ballot. I would have Andrew Jones. I would have Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez. So that's eight for me. Two more. I would have, I think that's eight. Let me see if I'm counting right. I have Beltron one, Beltray two, um, Helton three, Andrew Jones four, Joe Maurer five, Manny Ramirez six, Alex Rodriguez seven, because at seven, Gary Sheffield eight. Then I would probably have Billy Wagner nine. And there are a couple there are a couple players for me that I think are fringe candidates, guys I could be talked into, guys that I don't think are necessarily locked in, but I would just rather if there's a guy I'm uncertain on, if I have a vote, I would I would rather just throw them a vote and let everyone else in the industry decide. Like I wouldn't want to be the person that held someone back. So I would consider voting for Andy Pettit. Um, again, just kind of how we evaluate pitchers. Um, at first glance for me, Andy Pettit doesn't feel like a Hall of Famer, but I think there have been some people who have made fairly compelling cases for him. Um, I would think of giving Chase Utley a vote. Um, and then I think maybe the other only other person I would think about on this ballot would be Bobby Abreu, but I think I'd still be leaning towards no uh, for him. So that that's kind of what mine would look like. I think mine would be, yeah, mine would be similar. Probably the biggest difference is that you said you're not sold on Utley being in. No, I would. He would be like one of the. I think Chase Utley and then Andy Pettit would be the two that would be like battling out for my tenth spot. Um, I would have to look into it a little bit more. If I had an actual vote, I would spend more time with this. But yeah, th- those two would be the guys that are kind of fighting for the tenth spot. I could see reasonable cases for both of them. Yeah, I think the yeah, that was probably the, where the biggest difference would be for me. Then is where mm. Utley would be if I had to rank them, probably like a top top six six or seven okay for me on the on my ballot uh, somebody who i think definitely belongs in the hall of fame mm. uh, i'd swap out i would have petted in i'd swap that out for billy wagner um yep. just i think the you know it's just tough for a reliever to get mm-hmm. in they just don't throw as many innings uh, i i understand the case for him i would yep. be you know don't write that i'm mad online <laughs> if he gets in um but I'd have him, and then I, I think she- yeah, Sheffield to me falls in that borderline camp. But interesting, I, okay, yeah, I, I kind of view him as a bit of a slam dunk, and Utley more of a borderline. So I'm curious about our disagreement there. I guess it's like overall value, like defense, base running value, positional value. With Utley, he's doing a lot there, and then 
Sheffield is kind of like all all bat, but I, I think the bat for me definitely clears the threshold. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I probably would vote mm-hmm. for him in that last spot, and then I think Bobby Abreu is another one who's just, yeah, right on that cusp of borderline. Okay. Like, he might be just that, you know, 98th or maybe even like 99th percentile all-time big leaguer who just doesn't yeah. get in. The- I think I think Bobby Abreu honestly feels a lot more similar to a guy like Matt Holliday who, who got significantly less traction. Like, just Holliday, very good players for me. Like, I don't know if they eclipse, like, where I would feel confident putting them on a ballot for a Hall of Fame, but I don't know. And you're 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 in the Andrew Jones camp. Seems like safe to say at this point. I don't yeah. know if you always have been or not. Yeah, I think for sure he, sh- okay. he should be in the Hall of Fame. Nice. Two way center fielder, the power, the what was it, ten gold gloves, and then you know, sometimes you could say, all right, well, gold gloves. We have more with more distance from that period now we have a little bit greater perspective maybe some Mm. better metrics available to us and all of the metrics also show oh no this guy was i mean in in the conversation for best defensive center fielder of all time i think he's definitely the best defensive center fielder of his generation too so um i think that just the the totality yeah like certainly he fell off that cliff pretty fast when he got into his absolutely 30s but like you said that early peak the the postseason stuff that he did and then when this is somewhat subjective but i think if you're close kind of on that bubble which clearly the voters are saying that he is on that bubble of being a hall of famer if the distribution of how you achieved that value is such that you were the best of all time or, or the best of your generation at something especially in Andrew's case, center field defense at a premium position. I think that would that should give you an extra boost yep. in my mind too. So he's he's a yes for me. Yeah, I mean I agree on all points there. It, it feels like he's on the way to getting into the Hall of Fame. This was his seventh year on the ballot. He got sixty nine percent of the vote. Uh, I think he added four votes among returning yeah, voters we'll this year. You feel pretty confident then? Because for a while, I know I was one of the big drum bangers for Andrew Jones Hall of Fame case, trying to get more people to vote for him. And a few years ago, I don't think it was at all a guarantee. It almost felt like he was more likely to not get into the hall, but he, he's gotten a lot of traction. It feels like maybe as as the ballots have been sifted through, there's been a little, I don't know if it's been cleared out. It's not like we vote in a ton of people each year, but it, it seems like for whatever reason, his case seems to be becoming more popular. Yeah, three more years, and then I think even if he doesn't get in on those three years, I think the Veterans Committee will mm. push him through. Okay. Uh, I don't think I have any other thoughts. I do think it is a bit – I mean, I guess I don't think it's weird, but for me, A-Rod pulling at 34% is just kind of odd. I mean, he he's a no-brainer for me, but I understand with steroids for him is a little bit maybe too too far of a... Yeah, I don't think it's performance-related. Of course, yeah. I mean, there's no <laughs> argument for it to not be performance-related, but it is just weird seeing Gary Sheffield so close and A-Rod just... He's not going to get in at, at this rate, but well, what, I don't know. I guess what jumped out to me, I, and hadn't really thought about it, but with Joe Maurer getting in the Hall of Fame. So that Mm. now makes four players who were drafted number one overall who are now in the Hall of Fame between Maurer, Ken Griffey Jr., Chipper Jones, and yes, Harold Baines is in the Hall of Fame. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Got in through a different way, but he is still 
a Hall of Famer. Uh, A-Rod certainly belongs in that group. I think on performance, there's no question yeah. uh, about it. He delivered Hall of Fame value during his career and delivered that a lot of that value, obviously, for the Mariners, the team that drafted him. But um, if we, you know, if you want to call that four Hall of Famers from, what, from 1965 to 2001, so 30, 36, 37 drafts, that's basically one out of 10 number one overall picks mm. turns into a Hall of Famer. If you want to count A-Rod, it's what, one out of eight, eight, one out of nine. Mm. Um, I don't know. Does that does that surprise you? I, so it's like 10 plus percent. That that seems good. I mean, considering the, the percentage of players, I, I don't know what, I guess, the expectations for a first overall pick, I don't think you can ever put on anyone. Like, you just got a Hall of Famer. Like, even for generational talents like Bryce Harper, Steven Strasburg, A-Rod at the time, like, is it really fair to put Hall of Fame expectations on a player at that stage? I'm not sure it is. And I feel like that rate feels about right. Like, I, I don't hear that number and that percentage and think, man, you really think you'd have a lot more. I, I don't, I think it feels fine. What, what about you? I I thought it would be lower. Um yeah. Uh, just I, I think it, what's it's impressive to me because the draft in baseball is not like other sports. It's not like the NBA where you're taking the best player in college basketball or, or maybe a high school phenom, right? Like a LeBron James, Kobe, Kevin Garnett, uh, or the NFL where you're drafting the best players in college football who everybody knows and sees and who's going to play for your team the next year with a chance to have um, you know an immediate impact you're drafting a either a high school player who best case scenario is going to spend at least a couple years in the minor leagues or a college player who's going to potentially get there quickly but is also going to spend time in the minor leagues as well and we're in in the nfl you're basically getting your pick of the best football players in the country who are not currently in the NFL, that's not happening in baseball. You're getting your pick among the top high school players in the country who are graduating that year or the top college players who graduated from high school three years ago, but didn't sign out of the drafts. And like, yes, there are draft eligible sophomores, Juco players, all that, but uh, you're, you're only drafting from a, fairly narrow slice of players outside of the current major league rosters. Whereas if you said, you know, you get to pick from the entire pool of prospects, kind of, you know, like we do with the top 100, uh, I would expect there would be quite a few hall of famers who, who we had as the number one overall prospect or, or certainly among the top, you know, three, five prospects in the game in a given year. And if you go back to, you know, our, our first top 100 came out at, at BA in 1990. So from then through, you know, if you go through like 2005, so like 16 lists, you know, you had number one prospects that included Chipper Jones, uh, A-Rod, uh, Andrew Jones, back-to-back -back years, Joe Maurer, back-to-back yeah. -back years. So that's what, two Hall of Famers, um uh, one of them repeated uh, uh, another one, and Andrew Jones, who I, I think should, uh, we think probably will be in 
mm-hmm. the Hall of Fame and, and of course Alex Rodriguez too. But yeah, I mean it's it's a lot easier for us. I mean, not that either of us were sitting there <laughs> in the room in like nineteen ninety five. Yeah. Um uh you know, it's it's a lot easier though when you know you have somebody like Andrew Jones putting up a one thousand OPS as a nineteen year old <laughs> through three levels and uh, being a World Series hero at that age and playing incredible defense in center field, like yeah, like we're we're such geniuses to be able to figure out uh, guys like that. It's 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 a lot more impressive when you're having to make those bets on a player who is still in high school or a college player swinging a metal bat, especially going back 20, 30, 40 years ago. And, and you think about yeah. the information, the tools, the technology that they had available to them at the time compared to what we have now. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. I mean, the the difficulty of projecting players, the amount of years you have to wait before they're going to be even at um, the major league level. I also think it speaks to maybe how impressive some of these elite talents you're talking about, like stand out at such a young age. Mm -hmm. Like it does seem like there are just some generational type prospects. Like I I think there's a pretty compelling case to be made that A-Rod is the best baseball prospect ever at, at that age. It certainly seems like that based on the way he was talked about. Uh, coming out of high school, uh, maybe in 1993, it wasn't a case of like, oh, we did this really great scouting job. It was just A-Rod was so much better than everyone. The tools are so impressive. His skills are so advanced at the time. It's just kind of, you know, it, it's like if you're picking one that year, you're just fortunate that you're in that position. Um, it certainly seems like the case for A-Rod. Maybe players um, that we'll talk about that, that have a chance to continue this 1-1 Hall of Fame track, like... Bryce Harper, Garrett Cole, Carlos Correa. I don't know if Steven Strasburg has been healthy enough, but Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper certainly are, are that like generational talent type where regardless of the era, I don't think you have to like work too hard to convince yourself that they're the number one pick in a given draft class. So I think sometimes it's it's a, a testament of just the talent level showing itself at that age and, and how impressive that is. And at other times, I mean, Chipper Jones certainly wasn't the sort of prospect at the same time that A-Rod was to that level. It's not like he was some schmuck that no one was surprised was taken 1-1, but I don't think he was the consensus top talent in the draft that year. Um, so, yeah, it is fascinating to think through. I think it speaks to just how good a job the teams can do um, throughout generations, regardless of the data you have available. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I probably agree with you that I, I think the, the overall rate is pretty impressive. Yeah, and I think just the longevity that it takes to – become a hall of famer too i mean there are there are number one overall picks who had great careers i mean adrian yeah. gonzalez had a great career daryl strawberry uh yeah. bj Serhoff. adrian gonzalez first year on the ballot this year he got only three votes so yeah he was uh you know one of the best players of his mm-hmm. generation um you know josh josh hamilton is i mean had hall of fame talent he's yep uh, you know obviously had his career derailed um but he's like you know for for everything people all the reverence that scouts who you know watched bo jackson back in the day the way they speak of him and you know what what bo jackson did was unbelievable to be able to do what he did while playing major league baseball as like a side hustle basically <laughs> like he was playing in the nfl and in major league baseball it's kind of crazy to think about and obviously the athleticism and tools that he had were just ridiculous but in terms of what he actually like ended up producing on the field like 
Josh Hamilton was like, I think far, far exceeded that. And mm-hmm. he had uh, all of the, you know, the five tool package to go with it. The incredible, you know, plates, you know, played center field, played corner outfield, but um, you know, could run, could throw, could hit, get on base, hit for power, uh, did everything. Um, so there's, I think there's been a lot of great number one overall picks who haven't even hit this bar. So to me mm-hmm. to see the rate of hall of famers who have come from being number one overall picks, uh, you know, especially want to throw a rod <laughs> into that group too is, <laughs> yeah. is, is, is it's higher than I would have uh, expected it, it to end up being. And yeah, I think there probably are some, some more guys coming. Down yeah. The it feels like after Maurer, there was maybe a bit of a stretch where they're, they're, a bunch of players who don't seem too likely um, in terms of 1-1 players to get into the Hall of Fame. But I'm curious who of this pool of 1-1 players you think would be the most likely. Obviously, players who have been drafted 10-plus years ago, you have a little bit more confidence in, in their profiles and how they're tracking and just their ability year over year to sustain the level of performance. Like a player like Jackson Holiday, like who knows? Like his career is only just just beginning. <laughs> yeah, a little like, early to, to call it's, that one. It's impossible to say at, at this stage. It, it can go in a bunch of different directions. But after Joe Maurer was taken one one, I'll just go through some of the one one players and and you tell me which of these guys you think are are likely uh, or or at least have an interesting case at this point for Hall of Fame. But <laughs> you do have some maybe less impressive names immediately after Brian Bullington, right handed pitcher of the Pirates tw- in two thousand two. Uh, Delman Young in two, 2003 to the Rays, Matt Bush to the Padres in 2004, Justin Upton to the D-backs in 2005, Luke Hockover to the Royals in 2006, David Price to the Rays in 2007, Tim Beckham to the Rays in 2008, Steven Strasburg to the Nationals, Bryce Harper to the Nationals, Garrett Cole to the Pirates, Carlos Correa to the Astros, Mark Appel to the Astros, Brady Aiken to the Astros, and then you get into like more recent. I guess you could still go Dansby Swanson, 1-1 one, one in 2015 to the D-backs. Um, and then you get, I'll just list them all. I've already almost listed them. So Mickey Moniak in 2016 to the Phillies. Royce Lewis in 2017 to the Twins. Casey Mine, Mize in 2018 to the Tigers. Adley Rushman to the Orioles in 2019. Spencer Torkelson to the Tigers in 2020. Henry Davis to the Pirates in 2021. Jackson Holiday, uh 2022 to the Orioles. And then Paul Skeens, obviously to the pirates um in 2023 uh which yeah. of those I'll jump out Paul to you is... out of it for now probably <laughs> early to call that one but yeah yeah i mean look like justin upton david price steven strasburg all had outstanding careers and none of them are going to be in the hall of fame mm. um bryce harper i think is pretty close right now i mean and it's it's crazy if you think back to all the expectations that he had on him mm-hmm. when he was not even a high school senior, when he was 16 years old, being on the cover of uh, a magazine that used to exist called Sports Illustrated, um, <laughs> kind of a obviously a shame what's happened there. But yeah, um, it has made me kind of put more value on our covers. You know, like I feel like I've come up as a bit of a tangent on like journalism and SI and magazines, but. I feel like when I started at BA, I, I've always been like a digital first sort of reporter just because that's the, the era that I grew up in. And BA is one of the few places that I, that is actually still putting out a print product. And it's, I just feel like with SI going away, 
it, it just makes me appreciate the actual print product and the covers, like the, the ability for the cover to be a conversation starter in the industry and put like some excitement around players. Like our most recent cover, I think it was just announced yesterday, actually online with Oregon uh, state. Yeah. With Oregon state and Travis Bazan and Gavin Turley on the cover. Like it, it's just fun. It's fun to, to promote the game in, in that sort of way, like more of an, old school way and then the tactile feeling of actually getting the the magazine in your hands um something that maybe it was easy to kind of take for granted in in this like digital era but when a, a company like si has the the turn that it's taken over the last few years and obviously with the news recently it, it definitely makes me appreciate the cover more but that that's it for my tangent on on magazines yeah no i came up digital first as well and but i still and i don't know what like you know i don't know what the baseball america is gonna look like in 2044 but um yeah i love having a cover of a magazine still i think there's something cool about it um just just having you know being able to pick somebody who goes on the cover obviously like the magazine you know we're not printing a magazine every two weeks uh, like we used to be doing there's just not the demand for that Uh, so there's just fewer covers but in some ways it makes it even more valuable to you know, when we do choose somebody to yeah. be on the cover, but yeah, I mean, Bryce Harper has been on the cover of many, you know, whether it's the prospect handbook or, um, you know, many magazine covers when he was an amateur player or during his, I guess, very brief time as a prospect, he was like, uh, you know, <laughs> he was an all-star as a 19 year old in the big leagues. And now he's at like, f- like 45 war already, uh, 30 years old. Like he's just entering, the back half of his career and yeah, certainly the wheels can fall off pretty quickly for some players when they reach this age, but if he just keeps it going the way he has been, just has a normal aging curve, which I think he actually might age better than a lot of players anyway. Um, But I I think he's in a a very good spot to be in the hall of fame. I, Mm. I, I, I put very high odds on it. What about his game? Do you think you're pretty optimistic about aging well? Um, I, I think the way the way his the way his swing works, his approach, like he's not. It's not like he's up there as a uh, not even necessarily a free swinger, but he he draws a lot of walks. He has a great idea for the strike zone. He's you know led the league in walks multiple years. I think that's an asset for his game. Um, there's a ton of power, even if he does lose some bat speed, which, you know, I'm sure he will. That's what happens when you get into your thirties typically. So um, he'll, he'll still have plenty of power for the position. I, I think there's a lot of good, um, even though his defensive value is going to be very limited going forward. I don't think he's yeah. like this, like slower twitch guy with like old player or like a, a skill set that only plays well at a young age. I, I mm. think everything, even as he as he loses some some twitch and some explosiveness to his game, uh, I think the the approach, the way the swing works, the the power that he does have, I think will be able to maintain a lot of that. And I think that's going to, um, you know, by the time he's like thirty five, thirty six, I, I don't know, but I think <laughs> over the next, you know from age, you know, his age 31 to 34, 35 seasons should still be a very valuable player. 
Yeah, I pulled up just active war leaders um, with baseball references stat head tool, which is super useful uh, if you guys haven't experimented with that. And he's of active players. He is 12th in B war right now. The list goes Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Joey Votto, Paul Goldschmidt, Evan Longoria, Freddie Freeman, Manny Machado, Nolan Arenado, Jose Altuve, Andrew McCutcheon, Josh Donaldson, and Bryce Harper um, with 46.2 baseball reference war. I will be curious about like just defensively, if he's going to be playing first base uh, here on out, how we'll kind of evaluate the second half of his career, how the the value of, of his offensive game at, at first base. It's almost maybe similar to kind of the Joe Maurer conversation um, when he had to move to first base in the second half of his career or the second, the final third of his career, I guess is maybe more accurate. Um, yeah, I, I feel like he, he, Bryce Harper feels like a Hall of Famer. I feel like he's already lived up to his expectations as a super oh, absolutely. prominent, two, famous. Two MVPs, right yeah. the year, yeah. Yeah, it, it certainly has. Um, I mean, just leading the league in home runs, leading the league in OPS plus a couple times. Like he's got some black ink, number of All Star games. Like uh, you really can't ask for for more than that in my mind. Um, but yeah, I guess looking at this list it makes me a little bit more pessimistic about the Hall chances. Just seeing Mookie Betts and Mike Trout up there at, at similar ages um, with like sixty plus Baseball Reference WAR. I mean, those guys feel like locks. Harper definitely doesn't feel like a lock. I think he has. He needs to have a strong second half of his career to make it happen. But I guess uh, I haven't really analyzed too many players at this stage and like seeing the the typical aging curve it wouldn't shock me. But I do wonder, like seeing some of the names around him, like if he just doesn't, if he just stops performing at his level, like do you think that's going to be significant, or do you feel like he's already kind of made it? Uh, I, I think even it just a little bit more, like even if he's close, I think the his story and his historical significance for the game will or is going to help push him in too. I think. Do you do you think those factors, like how heavily do you consider those factors, and do you think they should be considered, or do you think it should just be straight up performance? Because it's hard to separate the narrative. I feel like in, in the sort of fame of a player. It is yeah, literally I, called the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I think the that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. No, <laughs> the yeah, the performance obviously should be the overwhelming factor, but there's there's going to be subjectivity to it for you know, especially when you have four hundred something voters or whatever it is, the number of people who are casting ballots now. So um, yeah, I think that'll play some into it. I, I mean, I think the two MVPs helps too. I mean, it's. Uh, incredible incredible peak that he had for for the last what 10 11 12 years of his career so even if something you know does happen where he has some you know terrible injury or, or something like that yeah um i i think i don't know i don't know if like if he if that happened like tomorrow if, if he necessarily <laughs> be in it probably still has to have a little bit more mm-hmm. longevity but I, I think he's i think he's pretty close right now yeah i mean even among active players with 45 or more baseball reference war he is tied for third in terms of ops plus of this list it's just mike trout joey Votto, and then he's tied with paul goldschmidt and i do think that for most hall voters like obviously you have the positional conversations but the hitting is is the most important we talk about this all the time like that the hitting stats, I think, are the most easy to parse historically as well. You see the Andrew Jones conversation. Like a lot of people just struggle on how to value that defense and how to properly quantify it. I don't think that's really the case 
with with hitting numbers and hitting statistics and Bryce Harper has certainly been one of the game's very best hitters um I mean since he's been in the league so uh, that's an important element as well but I I think the more more one of the interesting ones will be Garrett Cole as far as number one overall picks Mm. getting in the Hall of Fame I mean pretty pretty good draft that year for I mean you had Cole go one overall his teammate Bauer uh went three overall to the D-backs I know Anthony Rendon is not like everybody's favorite player right now but he he was a pretty great player man it Uh, really really makes it seem like this guy hates baseball at this point (laughs) uh you know what I think he like what he said about wanting the season to be shorter I think a lot of people who were dunking on him online would Mm. be would be cheering more enthusiastically if say uh, like Sean Doolittle or whoever your favorite player was expressed <laughs> the sentiment that they, they wanted the season. Or if it was just someone who had played shorter. more games, I think would have really helped that as well. Yeah. I think a lot of people just don't like him, which, and yeah. I, you know, I'm not necessarily saying the season should be shorter, but uh, I think a lot of that was, yeah, I actually do think 100, 154 <laughs> games would be a nice, nice number. Um, but it's really nitpicky. <laughs> All right. But yeah, I mean, Lindor was in that draft. Uh, Jose Fernandez was a first round pick. Man, talk about year. Hall of Famer. I mean, yeah. imagine if this guy, jeez, that's so sad. Yeah. But, you know, him, George Springer, Javi Baez was in that draft. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, Danny Holton went second overall and Bubba Starling went fifth overall. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, some some pretty great players um in that draft. Definitely some misses, but I think the fair to say the Pirates, I mean, you know, had they taken Lindor one overall, obviously that would have been yeah. great too, but um would have been a surprise at the time given his uh, his status in uh coming into the draft. But uh yeah, I mean I I think Garrett Cole I think Garrett Cole will or should ultimately end up in the Hall of Fame. And if he doesn't, I don't know. I like I, I just look at the Hall of Fame, like among pitchers right now, the uh, active pitchers who will be who who's who's in the Hall of Fame or who's like basically has a Hall of Fame candidacy locked up right now. Mm-hmm. I think it's Verlander, Granky, yes. Kershaw. Scherzer, and then after that, I don't know. Yeah, and I look at those four; feel like they have to be locks. Yeah, and I don't really know that. I don't really feel like Garrett Cole is in an entirely different tier to those players. Obviously, guys like Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer have aged phenomenally well. I mean, Garrett Cole, what is he going into his age 33 season this year? I mean, he feels like he's right in that company with me. Like, I would be surprised if he, I mean, if he if he gets injured tomorrow and doesn't throw another pitch, maybe that's one thing. But, I mean, he has been consistently been viewed as, like, the top pitcher in the game for, what, the last five years or so? And it's, I mean, there's other guys that you could put in that same tier, but he's he's in that group. He's got a side young, six-time All-Star, led the league in ERA multiple times, led the league in strikeouts multiple times. Um, he actually is one of the rare pitchers these days who is getting to the 200 innings threshold, which 
I think is going to really further separate him from his his peers in this era. Uh, it's still hard to match up with some of these older era just innings eaters and ace caliber arms. Just the usage rates for starters is so different. But he has crossed 200 innings five times in his career and, and out of 11 years. That's pretty impressive. He, he also has 180 innings in 2021. The 2020 season obviously was shortened. Who knows what he would have gotten if it was a, another full season there. So I think in terms of both like bulk and dominance, he crosses the threshold for me pretty easily. So I think I agree with you on Cole. I, I think I think he will or he should end up eventually getting in. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, be, all right. So then beyond that group of pitchers, who who else? I mean, if you like, look at active so this is active um war leaders for pitchers and i think maybe war is even less useful for pitchers but like in terms of a list of players sale Degrom. you're you're getting the four you mentioned verlander kershaw serger granke chris sale jacob Degrom, garrett cole adam wainwright uh john johnny cueto Corey kluber madison bumgarner aaron nola you darvish steven strasberg lance lynn those are that's a top 15 uh, none of the other ones feel like locks to me or, or really particularly close Degrom is a tricky one because he is like the ultimate peak case uh hall of fame candidate yeah 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 him him probably sale maybe would be mm. in the same boat i think i think Bumgarner is going to be the wild card where just because of the postseason i think he'll be like the millennial jack morris where <laughs> uh, voters who are like currently in like their you know, thirties or uh, maybe, you know, early forties even now are going to be like, no, like having arguments with the younger generation of like, you had to be there and see him him in, in the world series, see him Mm -hmm. in the playoffs, see the way he came in and just put the team on his back and all that. So, and then the younger generation uh, or, you know, and then everybody's just going to like also see the totality of his stats. And it's like, well, it's clearly not up to par with some of these other guys who are in the hall of fame. But mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm very curious to see what the support is that he ends up getting when he's on the ballot, but then uh, not even, not even them, but just look at the recently retired pitchers who will, who are going to be coming on the ballot. Who, who among that group is, a hall of famer what's There's, that group i mean cole hamels i think is a hall of famer i think mm-hmm. he's in but i don't know david price had a great career john lester had a great career i don't think either of those guys are going to be in the hall of fame mm-hmm. so just like you look down the the road for the next and and i think everybody else who's on the ballot is below uh, or is, who's going to be on the ballot in these upcoming years at least among pitchers is mm. below that group of players so um i i think we're just we're gonna have to um you know adjust our standards yeah down we're for... we're either going to not see any pitchers <laughs> voted into the hall in the next few years or a lot of old school people are going to be pissed off because the modern era pitchers who are going to be voting in just don't have the sort of milestones 
that you previously could accumulate as a pitcher. Yeah. Well, I, I sorry, I left off. Um, you know, Felix Hernandez, who I, I think is on. I think he's yeah. on the ballot next year. So like, he's yeah. actually. I, I probably left him out because I think he is the example of a guy where him and CC Sabathia. How do you view those two? Right. See. Yeah. And CC. Oh yeah. Sorry. CC Sabathia. Yes. I think Sabathia is in, and I think that'll be more consensus. I'm not sure if Felix Hernandez will be a consensus yes hall of famer just because his you know career basically fell off by the time he was 30 31 years old but he See, was so... i think for me felix feels like more of a hall of famer than cc does and this is probably just more more of my like peak versus longevity cases like i think felix just at his peak he was so dominant i agree that i, I think felix hernandez should be mm. a hall of famer and i think just in general my point is we need to yeah, make some adjustments as a, um, you know, as a voting block of, hey, we we can't hold these guys up to the standards of guys who threw like 270 innings a year yeah. before, or even guys with, you know, throwing 200 innings a year, which Felix Hernandez did too. I mean, he was, <laughs> I mean, he was consistently throwing 200 plus innings a year and being one of the best starting pitchers uh, in baseball on a rate basis as well. Yeah. And, you know, you just can't do that for like, uh, you know, 15, 20 years. It's it's not going to happen. You're not going to see the guys compile the the bulk of in their career that that they used to for, pitchers. you know, the, it's not the same. The one player who I think is going to he's kind of he, he, he had the worst time ever to appear on the ballot. Um, for us adjusting to how we evaluate pitchers. And I think you could even maybe make a case that his peak was better than Felix Hernandez at the time. But Johan Santana, I mm. think we're going to look back at his case and see how quickly he fell off. And I think people are really going to uh, regret that one because he was so dominant in his like 2003 to 2008, 2009 stretch. Like, it's just a 12-year career. There's no way he's putting up, like, the milestones that you need in terms of, like, total strikeouts. God forbid we talk about pitcher wins. Um, but, man, he, he was just so dominant that I would have voted for him. I think the fact that he didn't even have more of a chance to, like, for people to evaluate the case and adjust how we're viewing pitchers is a bit of a shame to me. Like, I, I don't really view too much of a difference between Felix Hernandez and Johan Santana overall, but... The difference in how their careers are going to be, I, I assume, unless Felix just falls off the ballot immediately as well, which would be a shame in my mind. But the the gap between where I expect them to be in balloting versus their actual performance and dominance in the league is is going to be really weird. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think Felix had more. He he, I mean, he had more two hundred plus inning seasons than Santana. Santana maybe even had a higher peak. He had two yeah. Cy Youngs, five. Top Santana had Cy Young finishes. He had five consecutive 200 inning plus seasons. How many did Felix have? Uh, like uh, seven. Yeah, no. so he had eight, eight total, and eight straight from 2008 to 2015. But I mean, Johan is a multi Cy Young Award winner. He led the league in ERA plus three years. Led the league in strikeouts three straight years. Led the league in ERA three years. I mean. He's just dominant for me. Oh no, yeah, on a on a rate basis, and I know Felix threw like seven hundred more innings than him, mm. but um, yeah, on a rate basis, he was as great as Felix was. Santana was even mm. better than him. So yeah, no, I think you're 
I think you're right. I think he maybe, I don't know, maybe ends up somebody getting in on the veterans mm. ballot. But hopefully uh, so. That would be nice. Yeah, I think he's he's deserving. I, yeah, I just I just think that we need to reevaluate. Otherwise, we're just going to not be electing <laughs> pitchers yep. for a while unless, you know, their name is Kershaw. Unless you just have, like, rubber arms, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll get you on the ballot, Ben. Start turning the tides. Yeah, <laughs> one small step. <laughs> okay, so next year's ballot, who do you think... Next year's ballot, we get Ichiro, we get CC Sabathia, we get Felix Hernandez, Dustin Pedroia, Ian Kinsler, Benzo, Russ Russell, Martin... Hanley Ramirez, Troy Tulowitzki, um, Curtis Granderson. Is Brian McCann not on that ballot? I think he is, right? Uh, I think he might be, yeah. But do you think he should be in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> Brian McCann is interesting because his uh, – uh, when fan graphs – Is he? Um, he, oh, he's just interesting in the sense that like his his total player war jumped significantly when fan graphs change how they do pitch framing and receiving and okay. defensive value for catchers, like shockingly so, because I don't think when he was catching, he was ever viewed as like an elite defensive catcher. <laughs> but if you look at the stats now, it, it says that he is. So that's why he's interesting. I, he doesn't feel like a Hall of Famer to me, um, but I think he's like one of the more prominent examples of like a revisionist we changed the formula a bit to try and adjust for pitch framing and he was like one of the biggest beneficiaries of that for fan war specifically um okay so that's why it's interesting but like i'll take a closer look at his case <laughs> yeah you got to take a closer look at all these he's a great right? player i'm not like denying. <laughs> i'm just talking about the standard for being in the hall of fame but um yeah who, so who I'll are the who are the hall look. of famers for you in that group i yeah i think uh I will join probably. I think it's just a question of does Ichiro get a hundred percent of the votes, <laughs> or does some does anybody leave him off the ballot? I'm still a little bit annoyed that um, Mariano Rivera is the only unanimous player ever. Like <laughs> a reliever is our only unanimous Hall of Famer. Really, we haven't had more than <laughs> the Yankees reliever. Come on, Ichiro should be a unanimous. Hall. Like who's not going to vote for Ichiro? That is just an, but. There's already been some discourse on baseball Twitter about how Ijiro wasn't that good, which is crazy to me. From somebody with like 94 followers or? I'm, it started getting the rounds, so I don't know. I, I, I was just kind of looking at it, but it was basically like an OPS plus argument, which like <laughs> I'm all for analytics and evaluating players, but I, I don't think we need too, mon- too many analytics to tell us that Ichiro is a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't need the dopamine that bad. I mean, getting three thousand hits. That you started your <laughs> you started your big league career or your major league career as a twenty seven year old, and you finished with three thousand eighty nine hits. Come on. Yeah. Oh, he's he's a no brainer. Uh, look, when you get to a large number of people voting on anything, you're going to have a couple uh, outliers here or there. So I don't get super hung up on it. But uh, yeah. Uh, I don't see the case for leaving Ichiro off your Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, I think he should be in. Yeah, Sabathia is in. Felix Hernandez is in. And then after that, I I think that's it. I mean, you know, great players. I think Pedroia obviously is a like you know an all time Red Sox franchise icon. But Hmm. I don't. I'd I'd have a. I'd, I'd have to be like really convinced to put him in the hall of fame and any at all time, obviously hmm. great career. Same with Kinsler, like 
Zobrist, what he did was phenomenal. I'm, I'm predicting Ben Zobrist will be like a, he'll have a little cult following of, of a lot of like analytically inclined writers and we'll have a lot of talk about like versatility and the value that versatility gives you. And it's not captured fully. I, I think he'll have like a sneaky cult following for the hall of fame though. Like I, I, I think agree. so. He yeah. Was very, maybe he was underrated as a player and, and certainly undervalued as a prospect and a great mm-hmm. story of a guy who went to, you know, six round pick at a, Dallas Baptist and didn't get to the big leagues. He was like you know, an older mm-hmm. draft pick too. Didn't yeah. get to the big leagues till he was like twenty five. <laughs> didn't really, yeah. Didn't really like break through until his late twenties. Which I, I mean, I think that's also probably what's gonna hurt him too. Is yeah, you know. For well, age. for example, Bobby Abreu has seventeen percent, uh, or he actually on the final vote he got fifteen percent. Do you think Ben Zobrist will have more or less than that on his first year on the ballot? And this is Bobby Abreu's fifth year, which is worth worth mentioning. Uh, I'm trying to like predict what other people. Uh, I, I mean, I, I could see him not staying on more than one ballot. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's my prediction. Ben Zobris will have some sneaky support. <laughs> uh, all right. Like, so you, you think he gets more than ten percent? Um. Just kind of let me look how through. How sneaky is this? Let me look through first ballot. <laughs> uh, let me just be bold and say, yeah, he'll get more than ten percent. This is going to look stupid in a few years, but I guess one year. <laughs> yeah, I don't Yeah, I'll say yeah. I'll say yeah. He'll All get right. more than 10%. I'll, I'll take the under on that, but... Okay. Um, but I yeah, mean, da- not, David Wright got 6.2%. Yeah, yeah you think know. he's going higher than David Wright? Yeah. I'll, I'll just stand by it for the sake of interest. Higher than Adrian Gonzalez? <laughs> Adrian Gonzalez and his three votes? Yeah, higher than Adrian Gonzalez. Higher than three votes, for sure. Come on. All right, maybe yeah, maybe I could see that somebody tossing him some votes. Well, the other one, I mean, we didn't talk about the other number one overall picks who could be Hall of Famers. Oh, you got some more you want to throw out? Well, I mean, Carlos Correa. Mm. I, I don't. I don't think he's. I, his case is going to obviously be a little bit more complicated because of everything with the Astros, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, and, and then I think also he needs to have a <laughs> he needs to have a much better uh, rest of his career than the way he performed in twenty twenty three. I would say but, no for Correa. Yeah. I mean, I don't think in the nine years he's played so far, I think he's more Hall of Very Good than Hall of Fame, and I think it would be surprising for the next ten years or so to be better than his first nine, just given some of the injuries he's dealt with, some of the recent performance. Uh, I, I would be surprised, I think, at this point, if Carlos Correa wound up making the Hall of Fame. But, um, yeah, I, I'm probably leaning no on that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it depends if 2023 was just an aberration and he gets mm. back on track and has yeah continues his success later into his 30s. I think he could get there. Uh, but maybe I mean, the fact that he had one of his worst seasons ever in his age 28 season is pretty concerning to me. Again, maybe it's just a blip on the radar and he's just back to elite defender, elite hitter, all around force. But I mean, he's I mean, Adrian Beltre, when he was, you know, what that last season in mm-hmm. Seattle he had when he was 30 years old was yeah. rough. I, I don't, I, I think it's a pretty high bar to uh, put Adrian Beltre second half career on anyone. I don't, <laughs> I don't to well, kind of anticipate that. <laughs> well, he also has a pretty good head start now. I mean, he'll be 
by the time he's 30, he'll have 40 something career war already. Mm. So I, I don't think he's, I don't, mm. I'm not saying he's going to be Adrian Beltre part two into his thirties, but mm. I'm just saying a guy can have a down year, um, you know, in his late twenties or when he turns 30 and it's not necessarily a sign that everything is starting to unravel. No, that's a good him. point. I mean, if you do look at their first, if you compare Adrian Beltre's age 19 to age 28, um, I think he was like 117 OPS plus. His total baseball reference war was 35.8. So, yeah, you can make a case that Beltran has already been better um, through this stage in his career. So if you are if you are optimistic about what he's going to do moving forward, you're right. I mean, he could. Maybe I'm being too too dismissive of him. But I wouldn't. I still would be more. I still be more skeptical. I guess at this stage, when you add into the Astros saga, I, I can't imagine people are going to hold that. Are not going to hold that against him. Yeah, uh, I mean, we're definitely seeing it with Carlos Beltran right now. Although I mm-hmm. wonder years. And he ago. was even less like that. That seems that should matter less for him in terms of his playing career than a guy like Correa. Well, and he it's was being held against Beltran. Well, I mean, he was there at the same time. I, I, I think it's going it, to, I think it may end up hurting Beltron more because of the recency of what happened. Whereas so you by think the people time, are just going to forget about it? I don't think so. Uh, I, I just think with more distance can, well, not Beltron basically had a Hall of Fame career before that 2017 season when he was with Houston and was not very good. So. If if they're holding him against that because of recency and not holding that against Correa, who that was happening like in his peak years. Well, no, my my point is it is it is being held against Beltron. I I, I would ass- I mean I assume. I well, I thought you were saying otherwise. that I thought you were saying that it'll be held against Correa less because the the scandal will be further in the rearview mirror. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is by the oh, look, by the okay. time I don't Correa I don't retires, think that'll happen. <laughs> and then five years after that. No, yeah, I, I think I don't think be. so. Uh, well, I guess you know. Well, check back on. <laughs> check episode, back in fifteen years. <laughs> uh, Eight hundred and forty-six, or maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe one hundred and forty-six. We'll see how it goes. But um, yeah, all right. But I, I think he's the closest one. Um, mm. next of that group. I mean, Dansby Swanson is not no getting in. Um, great, great <laughs> player, but not getting in. Who who would be the closest of the last? Of the post after Carlos Correa in 2012, if you had to bet on somebody, probably Adley Rushman. Probably the best bet. I, I was going to say either that was my first thought would be Adley Rushman. I mean, who else is even in in consideration for that? I really don't think any of the other names post Correa really makes sense to talk about. Really, like, I, I think if you so if you had to bet on somebody, it would be him. Yeah, or. I'm not putting Jackson Holiday. Jackson Holiday. <laughs> I'm not putting him in the Hall of well, Fame. Well, here's the thing: the all the other players have shown you enough to where you can feel confident that they're not tracking that way. Whereas you're like Jackson Holiday has yet to appear, and if he if he has like a Gunnar Henderson, Adley Rushman start to his career, it's a middle infielder with those tools. Like, yeah, I think I think the logic makes sense, and I do think outside of Adley Rushman, any one-one player post Correa, like Skeens or Jackson Holiday are probably the most likely just because we haven't seen them not perform to that level, if that makes sense. Well, and Jackson Holiday will also be, I presume, making his major league debut when he's 20 years old. Yeah. What I think, you know, and I think Rushman, you know, obviously looks like he's going to be one of the best catchers and just one of the best players yeah. overall. 
of his generation. But he, by, by the time Rushman made his debut, he was 24. At that mm-hmm. point, Jackson Holiday will have what? Age 20, 21, 22. He'll have four seasons. Yep. Pro- presumably to have already <laughs> uh, accumulate value. I mean, it kind of hurts Rushman that he was drafted in uh, 2019, number mm-hmm. one overall, and then had to sit out or, you know, nobody played in 2020. Yep. So he didn't actually get to make his major league debut until 2022, which is not late in his career, but I just mean relative mm-hmm. to Jackson holiday for sure. Yeah. Like holiday is going to get a little bit of a, uh, a boost from having, you know, his age 21 or age 20 to 23 seasons be mm-hmm. in the big leagues. I agree. You're, you're basically, I, I think the arguments would either be the certainty of knowing what Adley Rushman has been in the big leagues already versus the opportunity for holiday to just have four extra years if they're both healthy and how you view that. And I'm curious, like, how do you view, obviously we have hindsight bias involved here, but how do you view Adley Rutschman as a number one prospect in the game versus Jackson Holiday as the number one prospect in the game? Like, do you think they are of similar caliber uh, number one prospects, or would you lean towards one or the other? Oh man, that's a great question. Because I I don't even think I had Adley Rutschman in my personal number one spot. I do have Jackson Holiday. Like the the Adley Rutschman, Bobby Wood Jr., Julio Rodriguez trio. I think I had it J Rod, Bobby Wood Jr., Adley. Um, I think that trio is better than the current trio, but I also do have Jackson Holiday. Like I did vote for him one personally on my list. So I think I would view them similarly, but I also still might lean Adley. And and I don't know how much of that is just not being able to fully remove, like just knowing what Adley has been in the majors. So it's tough. Yeah, I did think Adley was number one at the time for me um mm. i probably have adley ahead of holiday yeah man it's close though mm-hmm. I, I think uh, be the the two-way ability as a catcher the the defense the offensive component to it mm-hmm. uh, as well and and then what he had accomplished not that i have all that much doubt about jackson holiday's offensive ability but what Rushman Rushman had accomplished, I think, more at higher levels, both at double A and triple A relative to mm-hmm. Jackson Holiday, uh, just in a longer, longer yeah, track. I think record he had a there. full a full season at the upper levels of the minors, whereas Holiday's kind of moved up the what he started the year at at low A and kind of got eighteen games at triple A. So yeah, yeah, I guess and I think games in double and a. I think Rushman too is is a he, he plays a more valuable position. You can say you know all right, well he'll play fewer games than mm-hmm. um, Holiday most likely uh, just because he is a a catcher, but the the he is better at his defensive position too mm-hmm. than Holiday is at his. So um, so I, I think I would say at the same time that they were prospects, I would have had. Rushman ahead. Yeah. Okay. So cool. Couple uh, Hall of Famers for the Orioles. Yeah. Couple Hall of Famers. There we go. <laughs> that won't look bad on us, surely, in five, ten years. Well, we'll only replay it if it ends up being correct. Well, we we will, but maybe there's some crazy person who's going to put us on like that cold takes exposed Twitter or whatever it's called. Yeah. Well, um, you'll probably have like a really advanced AI tool to oh, God, snake, please, all no. out, snake out all the bad takes from podcast well, past. Maybe when that exists, I can just make AI record the podcast for me in the first place and just sit back. 
tweet yeah. it out. Maybe I'd prefer that. <laughs> Dang. I really set myself up on that one. Jesus. All right. Let's move into some listener questions. Um, I'm so We've got like basically an hour of Hall of Fame talk. I didn't expect to have that much, but I thought it was fun. So um, that was nice. But we've got a bunch of listener questions. We requested a bunch. You guys delivered. So thank you for that. Um, we'll just run down the list and, and go through some of these. Um, Matthew on Twitter asks, or, or he says, Padres appear to be on the right path with a large influx of minor league talent over the next two to four years. So my question is, can AJ Preller stay out of his way and not trade them all by this time next year, or will most of them be gone again? Love the podcast, by the way. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks for loving the podcast. Thanks for this question. Um, I thought Josh had a really good answer for this question. It wasn't this exact question in the top 100 prospects chat, but it came up. And I thought Josh Norris, who who works with us, had a really good answer. So I, I kind of want to read his um, and then get your take on this overall. But Josh basically said um, that part of the exercise of team building is evaluating one's own prospects for two reasons, to add the big league club and to trade for supplements to the big league club. The better team is assessing its own talent, the better positioned it will be in the long run. All this is to say that I don't know if it's necessarily prudent outside of cost control reasons to strive for a core that is homegrown. If you have a group of players who could form a nucleus one day, protect them. If not, figure out how to deal them at their peak for value players who can supplement the team in the short term. So basically Josh was saying like in and of itself, having a homegrown developed team is not really important. The, the, the importance is using the talent you have in your minor league system to make your team better. That can be just graduating them. That also can be trading them for now talent. I think it was a very solid point. I, like there's nothing inherently like better about having a homegrown team versus having a team that is supplemented by free agents in my trades. I think maybe a lot of people will disagree with that and say it is like more impressive to have a competitive homegrown developed team. Maybe that gives you more flexibility. But I think ultimately, if you're using your farm system to acquire impact big league talent and you're at a similar level to a team that has their impact talent that's homegrown, it, it's just like you are built differently. And so I'm curious how you view that. Yeah, I, I think the important thing is to be able to, like, I, like Josh said, identify which players you should keep from your farm system and which ones are more expendable. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think the Padres look back with regret that they don't have uh, what Luis Patino anymore. Mm. Um, they'd probably prefer to have the maybe the Juan Soto trade back but um, that's just because of how uh, disappointing <laughs> the 2023 team was overall mm-hmm. um, so yeah I think like I think it's important to have homegrown players because the yeah the cost of those players is extremely low through the draft through international free agency Um you pay them, you know, a very low amount, and then you can use that money, at least in theory, not all teams do, but you can use, um, you know, use more of your major league payroll resources toward uh, free agents or toward, you know, trading for players from other clubs for uh, higher priced players. And, and you also get control of those players who you draft and sign as international free agents for, you know, six, seven uh, years, or, you know, if you're the Braves longer, than that because you just sign everybody to these long-term extensions. So um, yeah, it's not all necessarily just about making sure we don't trade everybody. It's making sure you keep 
the right guys and use the use prospects uh, intelligently in trades. And then sometimes you do end up giving up uh, good prospects uh, in trades who end up being good big leaguers. Like, you know, maybe Yohan Moncada hasn't like lived up to all of the expectations for him, but he's been a good player uh, through his career. But I think the Red Sox were pretty happy <laughs> to get Chris Sale back in that trade. So sometimes you do have to give up players who end up being pretty good. So I know, yeah, I agree. It's not just about holding on to all of your prospects and being as homegrown as you can. It's, it's just being able to um, leverage the players that you have in your farm system or just in your organization overall to build the, the best team you can. And I also think too, San Diego has shown that their, their ability to restock the farm system and identify talent and use multiple different areas for player acquisition to great success almost incentivizes them to trade from their talent more because I don't feel concerned about them infusing the farm system. Like they overhauled their farm system that we currently have ranked as what the, a top 10 system and like six or seven in the game after basically trading an entire farm system's worth plus of prospects in like a two or three year stretch, you would expect them to be where the Royals and the angels are at in terms of farm system rankings after just churning through all that talent. So if you can consistently draft, develop, identify, sign players in the international market to just reinforce your farm system, like you only have so many, spots for these players to play so if you can add impact talent at the big league level and feel confident that more is on the way in the minors by all means i think trade those prospects yeah okay all right we got another question from ray on twitter he asked what is kobe mayo's best path to the majors does he fit into the orioles roster or should he be trade bait for a starting pitcher e.g luzardo uh this is kind of similar to the previous question in terms of like trading your prospects versus holding on to them. And I think your point about player identification uh, and, and knowing which players to move is maybe the biggest question the Orioles have in the next year or so, just given the wealth of prospects at, at sort of overlapping positions. So where are you at with, with Mayo? Is he more useful for the Orioles or, or do you think you would rather be dangling him for a trade to supplement the pitching on that team? It Yeah, it depends. Um, I I really like Kobe Mayo. At the same time, yeah, <laughs> I really like Jesus Lazardo. So if you have somebody who, um, you know, if the Marlins do want to make him available, you have a, what I'd say a number two starter who is in his mid-20s, who's under team control for, I believe, what, four, five, and six, three more years, I think it is. So if you can get somebody like that, yeah, I would uh, – as much as I like Kobe Mayo, I would, uh, I would, uh, you know, hook him up with a realtor in in the Miami area and say, you know, we, we love you, Kobe, but we, we, we need some pitching right now. You know, would I do it for somebody who's uh, maybe like a three, four type starter? Uh, I'd be less inclined to do that. Mm-hmm. Probably would, would prefer to just hold on to Mayo, maybe mm-hmm. trade some, you know, they have so much, they have so many high end prospects right now just yeah. in their top 10 and let's maybe even just set aside, uh, you know, obviously Jackson holiday and, and, and uh, but Basayo into that group too, where I, I'm not saying he's un, you know, completely off the table on any deal, but um, 
just, you know, even just setting those two guys aside, they have other guys who are, you know, if teams are looking for prospects and especially looking for prospects who are uh, ready or near ready right now on the position player side, they have a lot of those guys who I think would have value to uh, acquire that uh, mid rotation, you know, number three, number four type starter, if they wanted to enhance the rotation and, and build the depth of the rotation too. So um, I wouldn't trade Mayo for that. I, I think they have different routes to go if they wanted to mm-hmm. go that path. But if they want to shoot for more, um, you know, more of a high-end starter like Luzardo, yeah, I'd mm-hmm. absolutely be willing to put Mayo on that deal. Yeah, I actually think I would be more inclined to keep Mayo. Like, I think the the top three players in their system, Mayo, Samuel Basayo, Jackson Holiday, I'd be very excited about just building around them. Uh, I don't think Kobe Mayo has played much left field or right field, but I think he has the athleticism and certainly the arm strength to fit in either of those positions well. So I'm curious like where he's going to play this spring. He's played some third. He's played some first. Obviously, I don't think third base is going to be the role for him, just given some of the other options for that spot on the big league team. Um, but I think Kobe is probably clears a threshold as a young hitting prospect where I would be more inclined to keep him than trade him for pitching. And I would rather, like you said, use some of the other players, some of these older players like Kobe Mayo is going to be entering his age 22 season. you got guys like Colton Kowser, Heston Kersad, who are already closer to their mid twenties, a little bit older. I mean, Joey Ortiz, obviously these guys aren't going to bring you back as much as Kobe Mayo because of that age, because of the power that he provides. Um, but I would be more willing to try and fit him into the roster somehow um, and hold on to him and, and try and use other pieces to acquire. Just the, the improvements he's shown offensively as a hitter in his time in the Orioles system, I think have been really impressive. I don't think initially on draft day, I was like super into this profile, just given some of the like inability to make adjustments at the plate, which is definitely not who he is as a hitter now. I had more missed questions for him initially. I thought it was like big power, big arm strength, and really a lot of hitting questions. Um, but what he's done in the minor leagues, the improvements he's shown, uh, the production that he showed last year in the upper levels of the minors, like I'd be very excited about getting him in this lineup moving forward with this young core and trying to use other pieces. So I, I would lean more towards keeping him. Um, but I think everything you said makes sense. Like it, it does seem to be harder to find and acquire and certainly develop top end starters. And maybe if you're the Orioles too, because you're so good at developing hitters and you have such a depth, like I was saying with the Padres, like this is an area you do things well. So trade for things you either don't have or don't do as well. It makes sense to me. I don't think it's crazy, but he would be, I think he clears the threshold of, of talent and he has the sort of age that I would be inclined to keep him. Yeah. I I would love to keep Kobe Mayo too, but I think it's just a question of, how what kind of impact are you going to get from a starter in return and i think mm-hmm. right now is like hey <laughs> this is clearly the mm-hmm. time for the orioles and if you're getting you get like somebody like jesus lazardo too it's it's not like you're just getting i, I wouldn't trade kobe mayo for a rental like or mm-hmm. for a guy who's only has one more year of team control i don't think that makes sense yeah. but to get a frontline t- starter who has three more seasons of team control. Um, I also think too, you're, you're going to have to add more to that than just Kobe Mayo. So if he's like the leading part of a package of other prospects, I'm even less excited about it. Probably. Uh, I think he'd be a 
like I don't think you're gonna have to throw in a whole like you're not gonna have to throw in like a Joey Ortiz or mm. um, like another top ten prospect in your system. I think if Kobe Mayo is leading that trade, okay, I could be wrong. Well, it, it's nice when we have uh, slightly different takes on things. So that's what we have on on Kobe Mayo. Um, we got another question related to the Orioles here from Marcus on Twitter. He says, it seems Samuel Basayo was going to the Yankees at one point before he signed with Baltimore as an amateur. Do you think his prospect status or rapid development would have been affected by another organization? Um, yes, I do. <laughs> ben, what do you think? Yeah, so that is that is true. He It did seem like Basayo was going to go to the Yankees at one point. Uh, I'd have to like go back and check for the find out the whole story there but uh orioles kind of got uh right place right time uh they had money still available to spend in their pool or money uncommitted <clears throat> in their pool um so they're very uh very happy about that one would he be different um yeah yeah i mean i think he would be mm-hmm. there would probably be differences in how he was, you know, so, so things that the the Yankees development people emphasize that's different than the the Orioles. Um, on the other hand, I, I also think the really good players figure it out regardless of coaching, uh, especially on the hitting side. I think pitching is more development sensitive than hitting is, but. Um, yeah, I mean, like I just went back and read our read the report that we had on Basayo in the Orioles, uh, you know, in the international review. So right after he signed, and it was you know fairly sound swing from the left side, above above average raw power, could continue to grow into a plus plus tool, short and quick to the ball, stays through the middle of the field well, good timing in the box, uh, and then plus arms, surprising agility and flexibility for his size, given how much or given how big he already is and how much bigger he's likely to get might end up outgrowing the position uh, might have enough mobility to at least try a corner outfield spot. So um, there were, you know, obviously a lot of good foundational traits there for Basayo as a hitter. Uh, He's been even better than I would have expected him to be. I just, you know, don't really, can't really ever expect a guy to be moving as fast as he did uh, <laughs> with the success that he has. So um, would he would he be different in the Yankees? Yeah, I probably, but I, I still think he'd be one of the best prospects in baseball had he yeah. signed with had he signed with the Yankees or had he signed with I don't know Oakland or Colorado or whoever else. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You, you think he'd be a lot more a lot different player? Or? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think it's entirely possible that Basayo is just such a talent that you're right. Like, regardless of player development, he is going to perform um, and be this good. I think some some players are just good enough that it really doesn't matter where they're at. I do think at the same time, like, all things being equal, I would want my hitters to be in an organization that has a proven track record of developing hitters. Guys like Gunnar Henderson and Kobe Mayo, who we just talked about, have certainly made a lot of strides since being in the Orioles development system i mean it seems like across the board all their hitters have made improvements and gotten better since getting into the system so it's hard to remove their pd entirely from the equation but it's also hard to know whether or not 
Basaya was just such a talent that if he was in the worst hitting development organization that he'd still be fine because he'd just go out and do his thing and he's such a natural hitter with these impressive tools that it doesn't really matter. So I think maybe he's good enough to where it wouldn't have mattered. He would have been the same, but if I had to guess, I think there's there's some positive impact that Baltimore's doing with their hitters. So I think it's it's beneficial for them to have been in this system. But yeah, it's impossible yeah. for me to really have confidence in like the degree to which those claims are true. Yeah, I mean, you could say the development matters. You know, when you're signing a player who's 16, and Basayo mm. especially was young mm. for the class. Like he played his first full season or his first season, almost all of it at 16. He's in August birthday, so um, you know, you could say maybe development is more um, uh, influential when you're at that core foundational level of still being 16 17 uh now 18 years old and um developing a lot of those foundational skills still so uh, yeah maybe i mean and, and i think the yankees have a um maybe a is polarizing fair word to use a uh, uh reaction or, or um in, in mm. terms just in terms of the industry how they view the Yankees uh, hitters, the way they develop hitters. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who see it as, you know, they, they do a lot to maximize certain things from mm-hmm. their hitters, especially how, how strong they get them and then how hard they hit the ball. And yeah. then the other criticism that I hear a lot that comes with it is they end up having, uh, you know, success at the lower levels of the minor leagues, but the swings end up being um, more grooved or or one plane, one dimensional Mm. type swings that leave them with holes as they move up. I'm not saying that's my opinion necessarily, just the uh, definitely the feedback from a lot of uh, scouts or people in the game with Yankees Mm -hmm. hitters. So um, I don't know, would he have a more, um, a different swing path, maybe a bit more uphill. Yeah, probably if he was with the Yankees, that might be true. But uh, I think the players who are this talented, especially the hitters who are this talented, are going to figure it out regardless. Okay. All right. Uh, we got a question from Average Chris Taylor Hater on Twitter. Interesting handle there. Uh, way, way, way too early pitcher from the 2024 draft who makes the big leagues first. Um, man, it's not a really good class for this question, I don't think. But the one name that jumps out to me is Wake Forest left-hander Josh Hartle. I think of the pitchers in kind of first-round territory at this point, Josh Hartle and maybe Tennessee right-hander Drew Beam um, would be the two that I point to, just given the um, command they have, the deliveries, the starter profile. Like Both these two guys have pretty solid track records as polished starting pitchers at the college level. There are other players and more stuff. Uh, almost all of those other pitchers have significant strikes questions. And I think maybe um, could have a little bit more development to do once they get into a minor league system. I also think the teams that are probably more likely to draft Joshua Hartle or a Drew Beam who are going for these like high probability, um, maybe higher floor, lower ceiling typical profile pitchers like those teams are probably going to be more likely to draft them and then move them quickly because they invested in that profile in the first round um so there's like a little bit of a chicken and egg thing going on with that but i think hartle feels like the safest bet here he he feels like that 
Nick Lodolo, polished lefty type that goes in the first round, like a Jordan Wicks kind of left-hander who like maybe there are sexier, higher upside options elsewhere, but you feel pretty good that you're getting a big league starter. So I think Hartle is probably the, the easiest answer for that question for me. Do you have a separate one for that, Ben? Yeah, whoever the Angels draft. Um, <laughs> although they probably won't draft a pitcher. but uh, They'll draft a hitter that makes contact and does not hit for power. Uh, I could see potentially Michael Massey being there, depending mm. on what role yeah. a team wants to use him in. Like, if you want. That's a good one. You know, you know, we'll see how he does this year as a starter at Wake Forest. He was mostly as a, used as a reliever last year. But mm-hmm. if a team wants to push him quickly and put him in a bullpen role, knowing he has that experience operating as a reliever, um, I, I could see him mm. just getting get, having a quick ETA to the big leagues if somebody wants to use him in that role. Yeah, that's a good one too. Okay, uh, let's move on to David. He says, I'd be interested in hearing your guys' thoughts on Blade Tidwell and his tra- trajectory since the Mets stayed quiet and short-sighted in starters last year at the deadline and this offseason. Blade Tidwell, um, he's an interesting one. I feel like Tidwell has made a lot of really good improvements um in this most recent year like coming out of the draft in 2022 he had a lot of pure stuff he entered the year as a first round caliber prospect ultimately went in the second round he dealt with some shoulder soreness um during his draft year missed a few months um but he had pretty loud pure stuff it was a fastball up to 99 um it was a high spin breaking ball mid 80s slider with with good spin rates um he always was a little bit more homer prone than you would expect him to be um just given the the pure stuff at college i think part of that is just the lack of command that he had on the fastball because it feels like his fastball shape and the angle that he throws from just means when he misses um it's a pitch that can be put over the fence he still has been a little bit homer heavy in the minors and that's an area that i'm hopeful he can continue to improve on moving forward like a lot of the home runs that he's giving up is just leaving his fastball over the middle part of the plate, leaving a slider over the middle, middle part of the plate. Um, But it does seem like he improved this year in terms of the slider, landing that for strikes more often. He used the changeup more frequently, and that seemed like a good pitch against left-handed, excuse me, against left-handed hitters. Um, There's a lot more running and tumbling action on that changeup now. Um, His overall performance is pretty good. He struck out a lot of batters. Uh, at double a particularly he was a little bit more homer prone than you maybe want him to see and maybe he's always going to be a guy who is a little bit homer prone i think he has a chance to strike out enough batters for that to be okay um i don't know like what eta you expect him ben to reach the majors but I, i feel like he's got another year uh pitching in the upper levels of the minors he only pitched Eight games, 34 innings last year at double A. I imagine he starts at double A, spend time at double A or triple A, and depending on how things go with the Mets, it wouldn't shock me if he debuted in 2024. But um, I think there are a few things he can still work on to kind of get closer to his mid-rotation, potentially number two starter upside. Um, but I do think the the slight improvements he's shown this year or, or in 2023 are encouraging for me. Um, if if he can just tighten the command of the fastball in particular a little bit more often, um, and just avoid the heart of the plate, I think that'll really help him. But I'm, I'd say more encouraged about Tidwell now than I was on draft day. I think he's made some, some nice strides. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you look at what he did in high A early on, that was really very concerning control issues. Mm. Uh, it was almost a, a walk per inning um, for his first uh, 30-something innings there. So, uh, But after that, it did seem like it got better, but yeah, still is an area where he's going to need to uh, throw a lot more strikes. I don't think – I'd be surprised if he ended up being a number two Mm-hmm. Uh, starter uh, and I'm not, I know you didn't say like he will be that yeah. but I, I think more I, I think it probably ends up being more back end starter a guy who like teases you with really good stuff mm. where it's you know it is a good fastball it's you know up to 98 there's life uh, the slider can be a really good pitch too uh, when that pitch is on for him so uh, there's there's definitely s- stuff there but the as even though it, it yeah the control did get better i mean it had to get better than, than it was <laughs> early on that's still a pretty big concern for me so i i think he'll he'll like tease you and flashes and make mm-hmm. you think like oh like this guy could could be on the verge of a breakout or this guy could be maybe a you know a, a higher end maybe a number two type starter but uh, I think more likely is going to end up being a, you know, a, a potentially solid back end starter for them. Okay, awesome. Um, let's go to Michael on Twitter. He's got an international question for you, Ben. He says, "Can Ben comment on where the Giants stand on the international market? What keeps them from signing guys at the top of the market each year? Is it their philosophy or how they viewed by their players and their reps? How they are viewed by players and their representatives?" Uh, I feel like the, what's that meme with the guy with like the earpiece in where he's like, I, I reject the premise or I reject the question. <laughs> um, cause I, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, if you go back and just look at the recent and uh, like recent, I guess it depends how far you want to go back, but like Marco Luciano is still a prospect right now for them. So if you go back to 2018, he was, I mean, he was, he was paid and he was considered one of the elite prospects in that class. I mean, it was, um, you know, Victor, Victor Mesa signed that year. The the Marlins gave him a whole bunch of money. He's been, um, you know, a bust out of Cuba, but otherwise, the, you know, the top traditional July 2nd international prospects that year were, uh, you know, we were debating between Luciano and Diego Cartaya who, you know, catcher from Venezuela, signed with the Dodgers, and I think Noel V. Marte, uh, I believe, was was ranked right after them. So um, I think the Giants made a good choice. <laughs> I think he's still, uh, you know, maybe you can argue Marte right now, but uh, they, they certainly did play in the high end of the market that year. Uh, 2019, they, you know, still, it wasn't like more of like that all-on-one on player uh, deal is our Iverson Arteaga, Anthony Rodriguez, you know, nothing in 2020, obviously, uh, got pushed back to 2021. So they signed Diego Velasquez that year was their top signing again, more, uh, you know, a higher end guy, but not like a top three, top five player in the class. Uh, and then, you know, the next two years, I mean, Ryan Reckley, they gave $2.2 million to, out of the Bahamas, he was considered one of the better players uh, or one of the higher, like a top 10-ish type guy. Uh, certainly a top 10 bonus, I believe, that year. 
uh, hasn't hasn't worked out so far. Uh, so offensively, uh, he struggled a lot. Uh, didn't he's really only played one real uh, season. Uh, you know, I, I know it's been a couple seasons, but he didn't really play much that first year. And then he's from the Bahamas, so I'm not not giving up on him or anything yet, but definitely not trending the right direction. And then 2023, they gave Reiner Arias $2.7 million. Uh, it's another near top of the class, uh, probably top 10, certainly top 10 bonus for that class. He's looked great in the DSL. He's number seven prospect in the organization right now. So, um, uh, you know, like what, three of those five years, they've signed a guy for a top 10 so a top 10 bonus in the class. And I would definitely put Luciano in like that, like elite elite tier. Um, and then, you know, look at this year. Uh, yeah. It was maybe more like spread it around where, but I, you know, I would still say Johnny level is one of the best shortstops in the class uh, just in, in the international class overall this year uh, gave a seven figure deal to Yoandri Sanchez, a catcher from Venezuela. Uh, I think they were going to sign uh, Angel Guzman, Another shortstop who's who's pretty good. Uh, he ended up signing with Toronto instead, but um, so I don't I don't know that it's necessarily true that they have avoided like the uh, you know putting most of their money or really going hard after one of the premier players in the class. If you, if you just want to classify it as like a top ten, either top ten talent player or top ten bonus player. So, um, yeah, I mean, and two of those guys are in the top 10 prospects in their farm system right now with Luciano and then uh, Arias, obviously, far away. And, uh, you know, Reckley hasn't uh, been going the right direction. But, um, you know, at, at the time, it wasn't like they were, um, you know, avoiding somebody who, you know, would be a, a top of the market type guy. So, um, and I, I do think like the results that they're getting now internationally are, uh, you know, like if you look at what they were doing, like the 10 years prior with, you know, maybe an exception here or there wasn't getting a whole lot of return on investment. It, it does seem like it's getting, um, better, but, but yeah, I do, I do think they are actually playing in the, um, you know, the higher ends of the talent pool. And then some years they choose to spread it around a little bit more. Awesome. All right. We got one more question. Um, Dylan on Twitter said, what are your thoughts on Noble Meyer and Thomas White? Did the Marlins get two potential top of the rotation arms in the same draft? Um, I mean, yeah, I think whether or not you want to say they right now have top of the rotation potential or it's more mid rotation potential, I think is arguable, but you definitely don't have to, you don't have to squint too much to see top of the rotation upside with both of these players. Um, Noble Meyer and Thomas White were both ranked in the top 20 of our rankings and to rank there as high school pitchers in what was seen as a really strong draft class with a lot of college hitters, I think is particularly impressive. Um, in other draft classes, they would have ranked higher than that, just given the lack of, of hitting um, in most other classes surrounding them. We had Thomas White ranked number 19. He was the top left-handed pitcher overall in the class, um, in addition to the number two high school pitcher in the class behind Noblemeyer, who we ranked number seven. Um, we ranked Meyer as the third overall pitching prospect in the class behind Paul Skeens and Chase Dollander, right ahead of Rhett Lauder. I think the tier 
between Dolander, Meyer, and Louder was pretty similar. So like the differences there are fairly interchangeable. Um, it's just more of a preference of like what kind of a pitcher do you want to take? Um, but I think both Noble, Meyer, and Thomas White have elite upside. I really liked this draft for the Marlins. I think I said it on draft day. Their class was one of my favorites on day one because I think they targeted a player profile that they have shown an ability to get the most out of in player development. They've really missed a lot with hitters. They have not been able to get the most out of some of the hitters they've taken at the top in the, in the top half of the first round. Um, their track record for pitching is much better. And so I liked that they were kind of playing to their strengths more. They signed Thomas White for first round money, despite taking them in the supplemental round that typically happens with high school pitchers. I'm more confident in Noble Meyer's ability to get to front of the rotation upside just because I think his command is a little bit better right now. Um, I also have more confidence in his breaking ball than Thomas White. But at the same time, it's really hard to find a high school left-handed pitcher with Thomas White's size, the ease of his velocity and operation. And when he's locked in, it's pretty overpowering stuff. I'll be really curious to see how his control develops over the next few years what the consistency of the breaking ball looks like in the next few years. Like, does his arm slot change at all? I don't necessarily think it needs to, but there's a little bit of length to the delivery that always kind of um, concerned me just because it, it did seem like the timing of his release point was always maybe one of the biggest bugaboos with him. Um, but again, I don't know that I've seen too many left-handed pitchers at his age throwing with velocity and making it look like he's just playing catch. Um, and then with Noble Meyer, I really think he's similar to like an Andrew Painter, Mick Abel caliber pitching prospect at the same age. His, his feel for spin is elite. I think his fastball has a lot of life in addition to velocity. I really love his ability to spot that pitch and mix it around in the zone. Uh, I thought the returns from his, his pro debut in a small sample was fairly encouraging as well. Both these guys have pretty projectable frames. So I, in terms of high school pitching profiles, it's a lot to like with both of them. And I guess um, it, it's hard to ever project front end, top of the rotation upside for players this far along. There's a lot of work to do, but they certainly have the talent to do that. Yeah, I think Noble Meyer checks just about every box you could ask for from um, a high school pitcher. He's, um, you know, six foot five does it easy uh easy velocity up to 98 it's a plus plus slider 3000 rpm uh wipeout type pitch uh throw strikes too i think we could be talking about him kind of along the lines that we're, we're talking about jackson job right now with the tigers as one of the best pitching prospects in the game so um you know to take a um, you know, a high school pitcher where they did, I, I think to me, a guy needs to check a whole lot of boxes uh, and you need to be extremely convicted in that. And I think Noble Meyer does fit um, there. So he's, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely excited about him. I think he's a chance to become one of the best pitching prospects in the game. Obviously we have him where we have him right now is pretty, <laughs> pretty high already in our top 100 uh, but I think he could move up even higher. And then, yeah, Thomas White got to see him uh, a whole lot over the last few years, uh, probably more than anybody outside of maybe his uh, his high school coach. So, um, yeah, like you said, does it super easy, very low effort delivery, and then he'll you know he'll still run it up to ninety six, maybe tickle a ninety seven 
Um, and, and I think maybe potential for a little bit more uh, in the tank just as he continues to get um, stronger. And yeah, the, the control is not as consistent uh, despite the ease of operation, it's not as consistent as Noble Meyer, uh, but he does he does have a better changeup too. I mean, his changeup has been I think his changeup is his best off speed pitch. I agree. Uh, he's going to get a lot of swing and miss on that. He does have feel for the curveball. I think it's like a, it's more that three quarters hard serve type break where I, I wonder if he ends up going to a more of a true slider. At some point, uh, just because of the way his, uh, the, the, just because of his arm slot, the way his ball kind of naturally wants to move horizontally, uh, I think it, it just lends itself to potentially throwing a really good slider too. I mean, we're just seeing more and more guys now go from curveball to slider in pro ball, so um, it's something he's experimented with before. Uh, I think it makes sense, especially as an amateur, just to try to focus on one of the two so it's been just fastball curveball change up with him um but i wouldn't be surprised if he uh introduces or reintroduces that pitch into his arsenal at some point so um yeah a lot of a lot of upside with both guys i think noble meyer established himself as the guy as the number one pitching prospects from the high school ranks for the 2023 class but um yeah i think i think white um, you know, if he goes out and has a, a good season, could I could see him jumping into that top 100 mix as well. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I don't have any more thoughts on that. Those are all the questions we had for today. So, Ben, we will, uh, I guess, plug a few things if there's anything to plug and then get out of here. Uh, well, we do have the top 30s up mm-hmm. on our site now. Top 30s for all 30 clubs, uh, 900 scouting reports, if my math is correct. So BA grades, uh, which is... You know, I, I think to do it well, you have to present not just like the OFP grade to me is like, I guess, useful that, you know, what like teams traditionally use. But, um, you know, you, you, I think you have to present like the the upside, but you also have to present the risk, too, because not like, OK, you think this guy's a future as a chance to be a 55 or a 60 but it's a lot different saying that for a low, uh, a guy who's not played an affiliated ball versus someone who's knocking on the door. Yeah. Yeah. Like Leo DeVries or Jose Perdomo who just signed versus somebody who's in double a or triple a where there's less risk. So we, you know, we present like a realistic upside uh, as well as the risk with the BA grades and then all five tools for, uh, or, you know, for pitchers, however many pitches Hmm. uh, they throw. So we, full tools grades for all players. So uh, all those reports for every team are uh, up in addition to our top 100 right now. Yeah. Um, Trying to think if I have anything I need to plug. I mean, we've got some good draft and college content that's been coming as we get ready for the season. So if you guys are as excited about the college season started as I am, um, just definitely check out the site for stuff from Teddy Cahill, stuff from Peter Flaherty. Uh, We've got an updated 2024 draft list coming on the horizon. It's not on the site yet, but next week you'll be able to see that. Um, So, yeah, lots of good stuff on the site. January is always a fun month. And if you guys have any questions or comments, you want us to answer questions you have about prospects in the future, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, you can email us at futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. Ben is on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Badler. I'm on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo. And as always, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for supporting Baseball America. Um, and we will see you next week. So long. <laughs>